You're listening to episode 54 of Alexa in Canada, The Voice Experience. She's got, She's skills. got skills. My name's Terry Fisher, and here's the deal. Voice technology is changing so fast, and I'm trying my best to keep up with it. I'm here to learn everything I can about Alexa, so you and I can figure her out, and so we can make our lives more organized, relaxed, stress-free, and even have some fun. Let's learn some skills. Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of Alexa in Canada. Boy, oh boy, am I excited about today's episode. I have been waiting quite some time to bring this guest onto the podcast, none other than Brian Romley, and he has often been referred to as the Oracle of Voice, and I can't wait to introduce him to you, but first, let me give you a quick word from our sponsor, and of course, that is the Alexa Conference, which is presented by voicefirst.fm. It's the worldwide gathering of Alexa developers and enthusiasts taking place January 15th to 17th in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Of course, tickets are available now, and you can get them for 20% off using the promo code Alexa in Canada. I will be at the conference. I hope that I will get to meet you there too. And it's coming up really soon. So uh, get your tickets if you haven't gotten them already. Of course, I will have the link to the place to get the tickets on the show notes page, which of course you can find at alexaincanada.ca slash 54. Okay, so let's get to today's podcast. And like I said, I really, really am excited to present this person to you. Brian Romley is one of the world leaders in voice technology. He has been studying this stuff for decades, decades. And when you hear him speak, you will realize how knowledgeable, how intelligent, how much of a visionary he is when it comes to this voice technology thing, this voice first world. He, in fact, is the one that has been given credit for coming up with the term voice first. And he truly is a remarkable human being. He is a scientist, researcher, analyst, connector, thinker, doer. He is the true Renaissance man. And um, boy, it gives me a lot of pleasure to present him to you here on this podcast. Now, we ended up speaking for quite a long time and we decided together that we would actually split this interview into two parts because the first one is more about uh, his general thesis and his thoughts about uh, voice technology, his background, how he became interested in it, the things that he's doing in the space, which I thought would be a perfect episode for this Alexa in Canada podcast. The second half of the interview, we get into uh, the idea of your own personal assistant and the implications that that is going to have on the interactions that one has with loved ones in the future. We talk a little bit about the applications for voice in healthcare, and I thought that section would be the ideal podcast interview for the Voice First Health podcast, my other podcast. So what you'll notice here is we're going to do about half the interview here. We're going to have the second half on the Voice First Health podcast. That one is episode number 19. So for the show notes for this episode, you'll go to alexaincanada.ca slash 54. To hear the second part of the episode, you can simply go to voicefirsthealth.com slash 19. And I'll have the links in the show notes. I'll have the links in the actual podcast player as well so that you can link to it there. Uh, the second part of the episode in the other podcast is is, is, is remarkable. It, it actually sends chills down, down my spine, literally. So make sure you have listened to that second part after you listen to this first part. Brian Romley is a thought leader, no doubt. And boy, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Brian Romley. 
So welcome to the podcast, Brian. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. I've been looking forward to this discussion for quite some time now, and thank you uh, for joining me here uh, this evening. Terry, thank you for having me. Uh, I've been a, a follower of your work, so this is an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, again, thanks very much. So let's start off with your background. You have a fascinating background, and um, I know some listeners will be familiar with your work, but I know a lot of the listeners won't be familiar with the work, and so let's hear a little bit about, like, who are you? How did you get into this? Who am I? Uh, not enough hours in a day. I, uh, <laughs> you know, not to um, sound uh, pompous or anything. I, I've just been curious. I started out thinking I was going to be a physicist. I spent time uh, not officially, but as a high school exchange student, if you will, at Princeton University in New Jersey. Uh, it was a program they discontinued where I could audit physics classes when I was in my uh, uh, last three years of high school. Wow. And uh, so I studied physics very early. Uh, I guess what I learned from that experience is a love for physics, astrophysics, astrobiology, um, and a lot of other things, mathematics, computers, um, you know. Uh, at the same time, running parallel, I was also in an era in the 1970s and 1980s in a part of central New Jersey where Bell Laboratories and the David Sarnoff Research Center of RCA were the Silicon Valleys of that epoch, um, pure research with phenomenally talented and creative individuals that could not have held a job anywhere else on a universe, not even at a university with as a tenured professor. These were... Uh, wildly creative minds that the the uh, monopoly of the Bell Laboratory uh, of AT and T and and the Bell system had, which allowed Bell Laboratories to dive into research that ninety percent of it, I can tell you, has never been released. It's unbelievable. It's not just huh. telephone work. Anyway, as a young uh, as a young boy, I had friends whose parents worked at the Bell Laboratories, and so that was really my early uh, introduction to watching empiricism, absolute research taking place, letting the research guide you and where you're going. And that's when I first saw a voice synthesizer. Huh. Uh, first time I saw the rudiments of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And uh, it absolutely fascinated me. Um, you know, I always was interested in um, astronomy. And so the physics and math aspect of it was coming to play, and of course, the computer programming. And those early days got me to thinking, mm -hmm. what would it look like in the future? Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't necessarily a writer, and I just started saying, you know, this technology, this idea of a computer in the 70s and 80s, computer was a relatively new thing from a personal level. Sure. Uh, the the Apple II had just started coming out when I was really getting involved in this, and I decided I was going to make the very first, what I thought was, and I still think, was the very first uh, voice synthesizer cartridge for the Commodore series of computers. Oh, wow. And uh, it was me and a group of kids in a garage, and I boldly found um, the phone number of a chip manufacturer, and I called them up and said, can I sample, am I cracking... You know, preteen voice, can I sample some <laughs> of your chips? 
And the guy left, said, what are you doing? I go, I want to create a voice synthesizer uh, for uh, the Commodore series and maybe the Apple II. Wow. And he said, sure, give me your address. I'll send you some out. He, send, he sent three cratefuls of chips. Wow. I do not remember the gentleman's name. I hope to find it one day through some of my archives. Uh-huh. Uh, it blew us away. That motivated us that we had a business now. And a lot of that's a blur because I was busy doing a lot of things at that stage in my life, playing music and high school and dating, all the other kind of things. But we cranked out hundreds and hundreds of these cartridges, got to meet the executives at Commodore in Pennsylvania, got to meet um, – before I – realize exactly who they were, Steve and Steve at the Atlantic City Computer Festival, uh, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. I wow. was very enamored with Steve Wozniak for his work on what became the incredible Woz machine. Huh. Anyway, I digress. I, I, I almost have like a Forrest Gump experience of being at some of the right places and right time in history, and maybe I'll pepper some of that in our conversation sure. uh, as I reflect back on how I got here. Yeah. But I started writing what I called the voice manifesto, which later is now what I call voice first in that epoch. And it was based upon what I was seeing taking place and what I started to see as a true AI informed personal assistant. Hmm. And Terry, a lot of that work I had to sort of put to the side as the, days of the early 90s came around because the technology wasn't there to achieve the things I knew we needed to achieve. Artificial intelligence was getting mired down into philosophical debates about, uh, you know, the Turing test. And those that don't follow this closely, the Turing test was a way to prove potentially that you have AI that could fool other humans. And I always thought Mm -hmm. of that as being ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I come from the background where cybernetics and Norbert Wiener, if you study his work and and go back, uh, and and these folks where cybernetics has a different connotation today. Everybody thinks it's robotics. It really isn't. The cybernetics philosophy was not to try to simulate the human being, but to try to get work done for the human being with the minimal amount of effort. And I really believe that that should be the goal that we have, not to try to trick people into thinking they're talking to another human. I don't really care for that aim, and I don't think we'll ever really get there because hopefully, hopefully, humans will always be unpredictable and creative and and um, and not as, well, some, mo- let's hope most. Some humans may not be <laughs> unpredictable and creative, but <laughs> right. let's hope most of humanity is. Right. And um, so... I got enamored with the internet and I got enamored into payments. So uh, I got uh, involved in payments mostly because of my development of um, some of the very first point of sale systems and later on some of the first payment systems that integrated with online shopping carts. And um, I love payments because they're symbologies of what I call human energy or work product of human, human energy. And that informs my love of history. It's like, how do we get a, how do we get around to making this symbolic thing called money? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I study that all the way down to the Sumerian ring coin or otherwise known as a shekel. Mm-hmm. Shekel means share of wheat, check wheat, share mm-hmm. of wheat. And um, how they created this bronze looking ring coin 
one of a few of these um and uh and how that became abstraction we call money all these things merged together mm-hmm. in this idea that uh i ultimately call voice commerce and uh-huh. what would ultimately transfer as a subset of the voice first revolution right so I, that's what that's one of the things that i really am fascinated by is your 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 thoughts and your your i guess your overarching thesis about this revolution that we are uh, and maybe you can tell me that we are about to enter or we are currently in what is this voice revolution that you speak that you speak of that maybe some of the listeners aren't familiar with well terry this is a great question um I'll try to be concise about it because I can come at it from many aspects. Um, We are in the embryonic stage of the voice first revolution. Hmm. And I love saying that because it's true because we're not even seeing what this is going to ultimately produce. I say that also because it's maybe a double entendre in a sense, because the very first outside experience a human ever gets is the voice of their mom hmm. and the sounds of the environment. Uh, very early in human fetal development, um, the ears are assigning uh, the mom's voice to something that it needs to echolocate the moment it arrives. In fact, way before the sight, the vision capability of a, of a human uh, is developed the echolocation, the ability to follow the mom around the room via her voice, uh, is developed almost instantaneously, and this is unique among amongst humans. Uh, there is some evidence in pri- early uh, evidence in primates. It um, may be the tenuous evidence with other animals, but uh, uh, humans use the mom's voice if we're blessed with, you know, hearing. Sure. Uh, there is other evidence that the sonic waves um, on the skin of the body also has a calming effect uh, during fetal development. So, huh. you know, anecdotally throughout history, we can go to all back to recorded history. Uh, moms have been been have been singing to their babies. Sure. This is this is phenomenal because it maybe it's uh, we can speculate. Well, let's call it. it Ancestral memory, hard coding within the mind of uh, uh, the maternal instinct of a mom mm-hmm. to do this. It's a survival tactic because that baby needs to be able to find the mom's face. And then the next thing it's doing, it's developing, uh, you know, what I call emotional intent extraction. What does mom's face mean? Is that a good thing or a bad thing she's doing right now? There's a feedback loop that's developing. It starts with the voice. So we are voice first before we're born. Then there's even something else that's more interesting, something called the phonological loop inside the brain. Yeah, can you explain that to us? Yeah, so the phonological loop, and a lot of people are trying to debate elements of this. When you go back to even some of the earliest research, damage to the Broca area of the brain uh, will allow you to um, uh, read and understand words, but you can't speak or you can't type. That's right. And you can't write. Yep. It's like, hold on. Speaking, typing, and writing. Broca's area. Hmm. Okay. What does Broca's area do? It informs uh, Wernicke's area, which is a part of the phonal, phonological loop. What does that mean? It means that the neocortex 
let's call that the abstract thinking that's creating the phraseology I'm using right now, everybody thinking right now, that's really fully symbolic. That high order brain does not think in words at all. It, it thinks in symbols, but not in the symbols and pictures that we call writing. And this is edge research. And I won't go too far down that road, but it's thinking in its own symbolic uh, way. Mm-hmm. We have three brains. And again, some people argue, Brian, that's old thinking. It is distil- a distillation of the reality with the, the, the limbic system. We have the animal brain and the mammalian brain, if you will. And then we have the human brain, the neocortex kind of thing. And a corpus callosum, and I can get into all this stuff. But reality is to take abstract ideas that come from our neocortex, which is informed by memory and other things that we throw together in real time, It has to be delivered to the phonological loop of our brain Hmm. to be transcribed to what is called a silent inner voice. And a lot of people, when they first are confronted with this idea, they're shocked because it is right there in front of their face, literally, in a sense. Every time you read, you can visit your silent voice. When you read, even if you're a speed reader, to some extent, you're listening to a voice in your head saying what you're reading. You are transcribing your inner voice, the phonological loop. When we are typing, we introduce mechanical load and cognitive load to our brain. We have to painstakingly remember through either muscle memory, quote unquote, it's not really muscle memory, but I just use that as a, as a vernacular. Sure. To type one character at a time, serially, <laughs> to try to transcribe our thoughts. There's a buffer memory memory in our brain that can only hold so much information. And once that information is peaked, we start offloading our mind's uh, construct, our memory of what we were trying to say or what we were trying to communicate or type, and it disappears. It becomes nebulous. And that's why when you see highly creative individuals, this is what started me on this work, they say, oh, this song, this poem, this story, this idea, or researcher, I, this insight. Thomas Edison, I can huh. talk about that. Uh, he, used, um, he used a lot of techniques, uh, hypnagogic uh, techniques, to try to capture his memory. Again, you notice anecdotally because all of us have had fleeting ideas, and we're trying to catch it in our mind. And we're saying, why can't we get it? Because it is so fast that it can't even enter our phonological loop for us to speak it, let alone the cognitive and mechanical load to type it. So what we have done as humans, because the computer was so dumb and so slow when it was invented, we had to invent a new way to communicate with it. Because it does do some things very fast. And that's rote execution of the same types of looping patterns that humans find disgustingly boring right it offloads us we are machine builders and we are tool builders that is what distinguishes human beings and when we built the tool of the computer let's call it a tool a machine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a tool uh we had to create the punch card initially or the switches on front of the computer and and then the punch card uh, bubble memory, all, you know, magnetic memory, all these different things to try to inform the computer of a sequence of commands, which we call a computer language, which we had to learn. So we had to essentially dumb ourselves down 
A lot of people will find this confusing because they think it's such a high order thing to communicate the computer. No, it's only because it's arcane and abstract that and you need to study a whole lot. Yeah. Some of us to become a programmer. I am a programmer. I do electronics. Yeah. Not putting down that profession. I'm just saying it's our, an arcane profession. Yeah. And so when we learned to speak computerese, if you will, the next thing we did was typed. And yeah. so we typed arcane symbols and programs to try to, again, dumb ourselves down to talk to the computer. Yeah. And then later on, it became uh, the mouse. Same type of mechanical, serial type of interface, even though you can randomly access the screen, it's still through a serial series of memory uh, of, of uh, memory links or let's call them hyperlinks sure. or icons right yeah and it, that was a that was a huge jump i can still remember from, that like having yeah. a voice uh, i'm sorry uh, having a, a graphical user interface that was a big first deal. time yeah yeah it was a big jump i'm not putting these things down but it's an evolution yeah. and then the next evolution was what steve jobs gave us uh essentially multi-touch he gave us a mouse to some extent he said good art is steel and so they stole it from xerox Palo Alto Research Center. They had it for 10 years and did very little with it. And Steve said, hmm, I'll take it and do a lot with it. And he informed um, the first major revolution in what I feel really major revolution of uh, computer human interaction, which was a graphical user interface. It, it, it liberate, it liberated the human from having to remember arcane series of commands to inform a computer to do something. It democratized access huh. to not only the computer, but storehouses of information that would have otherwise have been completely held in the priesthoods of uh, computer scientists. So this is a liberation. So the next liberation was multi-touch. And that was a glass screen, rubbing your fingers up and down a glass screen. And that's kind of where we are today. Right. And like all human endeavors, like all history, we think we've reached the pinnacle and we can go no further. Hmm. And I asserted in my innocent mind of uh, you know my late and early teens that that I didn't predict multi-touch. No, I'm not that uh, Nostradamus-like, but I did predict huh. that we would ultimately wind up talking to our computers and they would understand us, and not in a Star Trek sort of sci-fi way but in a very practical way mm -hmm. and in my voice first manifesto it ended around a thousand odd pages in the late 80s uh, it's a lot larger now all typewritten written for a lot of reasons not because i'm crazy or mm -hmm. i mean i didn't have access to a personal computer mm -hmm. uh in uh in that era when i first started so uh it, typewriter it was ironically you know, and and it was funny while I was typing it. I can remember back. I said, I can't wait until I don't have to remember every single spelling of every <laughs> single word. Yeah. Because does that not slow us down? Indeed, it does. Yeah. And I'm not saying that education or learning to spell or doing mathematics, I can still do a slide rule. That's how I learned mathematics. I'm not saying these things aren't good endeavors. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you and I only have so many minutes yep. in this life, the mm -hmm. thing we call life. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why I find money interesting. We, we get to choose, hopefully, or circumstances get to choose what we get to do. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get too philosophical, whether we signed up for this or we're victims of some fate or there is no, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. But what are we going to do with our time? Yeah. If our time is spent working a machine to get to what we want to find out or, we, or the work we want to get done, work to be done, mm-hmm. right? Cybernetics, what, what does a human want to achieve? We can get caught up because I'm a nerd. I love machinery. So I could sit there and get inside the electronics of anything and say, wow, look at this. Mm-hmm. But most people want to get about the business of their life, whatever that is. Yeah. But you and I have been victims of the machine for the better part of the entire computer revolution, because we have to study arcane languages, yeah. albeit they, they're getting simpler, arcane commands, arcane movements of our hands around the screen or a mouse or a trackpad or keyboard commands. All of this stuff gets in the way of what I believe is distinctly human, and that's creativity. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to say, yeah. all this stuff that you're, you're saying, it, it, it reminds me or, or, or it, it um, you know, it's a cue for me to, to think about when I'm, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about being creative. When I, I find that I do some of my best creative thinking or have ideas or I'll give you a, I'll give you a concrete example. You know, when I've been asked to give a talk at some type of event or a conference, I find that when I do my best sort of brainstorming and idea generation for what I'm going to speak about, it's when I am up about walking around or for example even just standing in the shower and I'm yeah. and I'm just thinking about this <laughs> stuff and I and it's and these ideas are forming in my head and then I go to sit down and I try to capture these and I can't good luck yeah terry this is amazing because you're antidotally telling us everybody listening what we all kind of instinctively instinctively know but a lot of us really, unless you're a nerd about this, really don't sit down and think about it. Part of my checkered past is songwriting and helping people write songs and music. And I have been very fortunate to work with some of the most amazing people that you would most definitely recognize their name. And I would always ask anybody who is creative, how did you come up with this idea? I I, I just, as a study of humanity, I was like, Mm -hmm. where did you get that idea from? And they're like, I don't know. I've yet to find anybody who's truly honest. A lot of people will, well, you know, because I studied so many years. No. Thomas Edison, I talked about the hypnagogic state. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are like, what is this guy talking about? There's this point of twilight between drifting off to sleep and entering the dream state, not quite the dream state, where there is a flash of potential creativity. Hypnagogic is really informative, hypnotizing. The sound of waves, the sound of the water in the shower, which is one of the reasons why the shower, a lot of people don't understand. One of the reasons why the shower is so amazing for creativity is that sound, that white noise, actually puts you in a hypnagogic state. It makes you trance-like, and the heat, the steam, it, it is a very creative process. That's why a lot of songs have been written in the shower. A lot of people sing in the shower. That's another thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but Edison was so attuned to this, and he didn't invent it. This has been a secret of many, many thousands of years. He just created his own unique way of doing this. You can look up, I wrote a Quora piece, which was picked up by Time Magazine, Huffington Post, and a few others that there's a statue that Edison had commissioned uh, at his summer home in Florida. 
which happens to be the same summer home as of Henry Ford, the Ford uh, Edison home. And it's a statue of Edison placed in an exact position at the exact style and exact height that he commissioned before he died. He didn't want it erected until after he died, and he didn't want anybody to explain why it was the way it was. But interestingly enough, in his right hand is a cane. In his left hand, this is his older version of, of Edison he wanted to portray. In his left hand was a steel ball, a ball bearing, about the size of your hand, your fist. And hundreds of researchers, many, many biographies. Nobody's ever caught it. They say, oh, well, he just likes machinery. He's holding a ball. Well, I was lucky enough. I grew up in New Jersey. I mean, as I would, I asked questions. And I asked one of the curators at the Edison Museum. I said, what heck's up with Edison and these steel balls? He was an old guy. And I didn't ask his name, but he was he knew Edison, which blew my mind. And he was a curator at, at his museum. You know, one of the docents, maybe. I don't know. I was a kid. And he said, that's how he got his ideas. Now, I could have stopped there and figured the, the ball has mystical powers because right? <laughs> because right. that's what ancient cultures would have been. We, we call it, we call this cargo cults. Right. You know, if you ever want to have a good time, look up cargo cults and, and you can understand what humans will do. Huh. They will assign uh, if I would go back in time and give somebody in the wild, 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 wild west a DVD and say this holds the knowledge of all humanity. They might make make it a medallion and say, look, this is knowledge and not understand that there's a higher level. So the higher level with Edison with the ball would just before he would take about five to six naps a day. He would generally not sleep eight hours. He was a polyphasic sleeper. And that's another thing. And he would sleep generally under his workbench or on top of the workbench. And everybody got kind of used to this weird stuff. I don't know if it go over well today's world. But <laughs> anyway, he's sleeping under the workbench and he'd hold actually in both hands most of the time, two steel balls and underneath them pipe plates. Hmm. And just as he drifted off, guess what he would do? There'd be a drop little jerk, drop the ball. And what yeah. do we do immediately? We Write go. down or have an assistant, and this, again, would not go over very well having an assistant hanging out. <laughs> Write down whatever he thought, and then go back to sleep and do it all over again. And that's how he claimed he invented the electric light. Wow. And other things. Yeah. Uh, you know, so... Getting back to, uh, I was gonna say, like, how, so how does this all, we yeah, there. bring back to? So, I mean, this is this is fascinating. So, the I'm way known to go down a road here, <laughs> no, 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 it's absolutely fascinating. So, we're, you know, the idea of how voice is so innate oh, yeah. to us, creativity. How does yeah. this come back to this this revolution and this this world so, that we are living in now, where voice is going to be the way we do things? So, so obviously. Uh, anybody listening to us can go out and increase their creativity by a, a huge margin just by they don't even need voice uh, transcription. It's talking to a recorder while they're walking around out in the wilderness or whatever. I encourage anybody that wants to be highly creative to use uh, voice recording. Uh, if you want to get really good at it, use Siri text to speech recording. Uh, on your iPhone or the Android uh, equivalent. And don't worry about spelling. Don't worry if it's going to get it wrong. You know, you'll figure it out. And document your ideas. Everybody, everybody's got creativity. This will help you get that creativity out. And then if you want to create some kind of structure to it and make it a work of art, publish it, whatever, do it. But this is how humans have been creative since the beginning of time. Now, I'm not saying visual arts or writing or scribing is not creative it is but it 
it activates a different part of the brain. And it is not nearly as creative on a general sense of what we call flow. And that is kind of what I try to get myself into whenever I'm doing stuff like this. That's why I get lost, is I allow myself to go into flow. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's honorary to people. But when you get into flow, you are literally allowing the phonological loop to take over and allowing your high-order brain to inform your lower-order brain to take this information and transcribe it as fast as possible. I'll leave anybody with this subject that really wants to study it with a book by Tor Norstanders. Now, I'm not going to be able to spell the name. I'm probably hacking it, but it's called The User Illusion. Okay. And you want to really, really be blown away about what the human mind is capable of. And The User Illusion is a book I read pretty much every nine or nine to 12 months. And I've been reading it that way since the mid-1990s. So it is that dense of a con concept of a book. And Tor Norstanders was a, a still is a science writer in Europe, um, and he tore apart and synthesized together the research of incredible amounts of studies that showed how the brain literally is creating illusion. There's a there's a a half second delay to everything that happens in the world. You literally, when you think something's happening, it already happened a half second ago. Mm. And when you when you really grasp what's going on, oh, that, the other that's one thing, and that's phenomenal. When that really sets in, you'll realize that nothing, nothing's really. You're really not doing what you think you're doing. Your brain is fooling you that you did do what you just did. It actually acted the, the other brain. Let's call it the higher brain. This is not the three brains. There's this other concept of the brain mm -hmm. is actually acting upon your behalf, and then telling you a half a second later that you actually did it. Hmm. This is how we are able to hit a baseball at such high speed. It goes on. And there is empirical, double-blind studies, multiple times. This is not a theory. It's already been proven. It's It should be on the front pages of newspapers. It should inform a lot of elements of society. I don't know why, but I give you this. The other thing it did tell us is that there's a throughput of the human brain. 11 bits per second is all you and I can handle. Our sense organs can uh, produce, uh, I don't know, about 250,000 bits per second, and that's conservative. So, so there's a throughput tunnel that's a funnel. So who's giving you the information you need to learn at that particular moment? If you can only handle 11 bits and there's thousands of bits coming in, who's handling that? Is it you? Because you and I don't definitely are not handling that. There's another, there's another thing inside of there, if you will. I call it the editor. At the editor's table, cutting the film of life and giving us our 11 bits that we think our paradigms have informed us is important. And again, this goes back to voice. All of our user interfaces have been slowing us down. The user illusion, uh, the phonological loop, the results of the user illusion, the phonological loop, right. the idea that we're tuned for voice, the idea yeah. that we are transcribing our voice in our brain. That's where my thesis comes from. And then it goes on into the future, into what I call the true personal assistant. That's and why is this a revolution? Because... We are finally going to be liberated, Terry, from being tied to the machine and being the end product of a Google search. We can find 12 billion results in a half a second on Google. 
But you and I still have to sort it out. That's right. So That's right. we're not at the just that alone should tell us that we're not at the apex of human achievement. Now, I'm not putting down what that search you just did. I'm not putting down the algorithms Google uses, some of it financially, to produce what they think is the best result. But without the true high context of who you are as an individual, that search result is almost useless until the human is sifting and sorting that search result. And by the way, that's what most of us are doing on a computer is a rote mechanical aspect of sifting and sorting information because a computer is not smart enough to do it for us. That's right. There's another whole layer there to uh, yeah. to yeah, there's another whole layer that can and sounds like voice is going to be one of the things that really um, takes us there. I wanted to I wanted to ask you um, another question, and and I, I know what we're going to do here is because this is so fascinating. We're going to do a second segment of this conversation on um, on my other podcast, Voice First Health, because this is just I mean this, there's so much here to talk about. But one thing I wanted to ask you about that I saw you recently um, commenting on Twitter, and specifically for this podcast, the Alexa Canada podcast, and in, in the concept of voice assistance. I'd love to get your opinion on the difference between the way Amazon named their assistant Alexa and Google did not provide a, you know, a, a human name for their assistant. And yeah. what's your take on that? Well, my take is very simple. And I have the preponderance of empirical research, many studies on this. And you don't really need it. You just need to open your eyes as a human being and, and look around you. We anthropomorphize anything that has human characteristics, right? If, if, we, see, if we see a dog that has, uh, you know, sort of looking like a detective, we throw a, a Sherlock Holmes hat on it and maybe a pipe and we go, see, that's a detective dog. We have anthropomorphized. Now, how do we anthropomorphize voice? Well, Voice is a human quality. Mm -hmm. Voice has a dynamic that is assigned to a personality. The personality is informed. This is where we get really esoteric for people in AI and computer science. And it's why there is such a problem right now, because we haven't, we haven't fused these two things together yet. And it's what I hope to help bring about. It's maybe one of the things I can contribute as a synthesizer of these things, because I do bridge both worlds. I have no documents to prove that. I do not have a degree. So take that with a grain of salt. But, you know, go and do the research about some of the things I say and see if you come to the same conclusions. Anyway, the the idea that we're going to talk to something and it's going to be devoid of emotion, gender, nationality, and all these things that are politically hot potatoes right now, <laughs> utterly ridiculous. Hmm. If it has a female quality voice, we are going to call it she. Yeah. Go over in a corner and debate what all that means. Why is it a female voice? And again, some people who are misinformed will say, well, that's because it's a male-dominated world, maybe, perhaps. But that's not really what it is. The female voice is a voice of, of authority. And I just earlier explained why. It's the very first sound we hear. It's our mom's voice. Our mom's voice is a female voice. Hmm. Mom's gender is generally female. And so when we hear that voice... We assign it authority. Now, a lot of people might find that funny. I suggest that the empirical research it doesn't find it very humorous. It, we do 
perk up when we hear our mom's voice. And our mom can command us to do things that no other human on this planet could do, even at an older age. Most of us, maybe a vast majority of us. Hopefully everybody. Hopefully moms still have a power over people. Even <laughs> people have gotten so uh, arrogant. Mm. And, and, and in either regard, uh, it is a voice of authority. But So a bunch of computer scientists sit around and say, oh, well, we, uh, we we don't want to give it a, a name. We don't want to give it a gender. That's too much to deal with. Yeah. Well, if you ever asked, if, if were to ask me, I would say, well, give it, give it the voice of authority. Oh, that's it's going to be a guy's voice. No, it's probably going to be a girl's voice, and it's probably going to talk in a manner that you probably wouldn't program it. It probably won't talk in facts. It will probably talk more in what you're looking for. Oh, boy, Brian, that sounds very new agey and hazy to me. <laughs> well, guess what? That's how all of us talk. You know, I use Myers-Briggs. Uniquely, i probably the only person been doing this for decades. I use actually Jungian archetypes and other systems to inform the voice-first devices that I'm creating. I work out of my own garage lab, and my VC is a piggy bank, so, and I use hundreds of Raspberry Pis. These are $5 computers to cover my uh, completely horrible uh, concentration to want to program and devise more sophisticated electronics because I really just want to get things done and test ideas. And I've been doing this for de uh, well, voice assistance for about almost two decades, primarily in a very heavy way the last decade. Mm -hmm. A true voice first personal assistant. Let me tell you the end point of why this is so exciting to me. And I work backwards. And I think all great adventures should have an endpoint working backwards. I will take everybody on a bit of a quick thought experiment. Imagine the moment you wake up from being born <laughs> that there is a device which your parents and you ultimately would agree to be on at all times with you. So there you go. That's where we're going to cut off the first part of the interview. I know it's a little bit of a cliffhanger, but you really, really, really don't want to miss the uh, second part of the interview at voicefirsthealth.com slash 19. Like I said, it literally sends chills down my spine when he starts talking about personal voice assistance and how that is going to impact our relationships in the future. So, um, the show notes for this episode, again, A-L-E-X-A in Canada.ca slash 54. And all of the links that I'm going to have on the Voice First Health show are going to be on this show as well. So regardless of where you go, you can check out the links and the information on how to reach out to Brian if you so wish to. Um, but again, I really encourage you to check out the second episode, the second part of this particular interview at voicefirsthealth.com slash 19. All right, I will see you there. She's got, she's got skills. skills.